how can a simple black and white cookbook encapsulate so much of a region's history and ultimately go on to inspire life's work? Well, one half of those Barossa girls, Shirley Menz, is here today to explain the charm of that book and what it means to cook like a Barossan. Well, that's a really great idea. I'm going to make my biscuits the same way. And all of a sudden, you've got a regional food story that's just been born. For honey biscuits. And uh, please don't ask me to do it in German. <laughs> and I think when we look back in 20 years' time and say, wow, that was really something. Supported Dragon three times. Mental as anything. The choir boys. The angels. The divinals. He'd miss the ball. And I have to explain to him, no, you can't re-hit it. I <laughs> <laughs> Great live Yabby event of 1996. Dog in the back of the boat that was being fed meat pies on the way over. <laughs> Nothing awkward about that, man. But please, call me Dave. It's just us. The stories of Barossa told by Barossans. Hosted by the vintage whisperer, winemaker and aspiring actor Stuart Bourne. With wine educator, marketing director and complete new import legend to the Barossa, Amanda Longworth. And why the hell does every Barossan, except me, have a Yabby story? And a big warm welcome to you, Shirley Mintz. Thank Thank you. Thanks for coming along and joining us today. My pleasure. The first question I've got is, how did you fall into the rabbit hole that is Barossa's food history? I don't know that I fell into the rabbit hole so much as I got sucked in. Um, (laughs) And I don't know whether perhaps I might just be a cookbook nerd or whether other people find this as fascinating as Marika and I do. But the more we researched this fabulous little Barossa cookery book, which I know we're going to talk about a little more in a minute, but the more captivating and fascinating it became because it's more than just a cookbook. There is so much depth and immersive information captured between those two little book covers so literally that was the draw card that brought you into the food history of the Barossa was seeing this book and starting to get a feel for was more than just a cookbook absolutely so you know we we kind of fell in love with the book because it's very quaint and it's very cute and it's this fabulous kind of little snapshot this little time capsule that steps you right back into 1917 and 1932 but then we came across so I don't know if you're familiar with Angela Hoytzenroder who of course is um, the Barossa's food historian we came across her PhD that she wrote on that Barossa cookery book and that all of a sudden it was just like whoa mind blown because that's where she introduced us to this whole concept of this being so much more than just recipes this talks about the social environment the political environment the gender stereotypes the anti-german sentiment that was so prevalent that as soon as you start thinking about all this background information that talks so much about the lives that these women led all of a sudden these just become so much more than just recipes Mm, amazing and given that you are one half of those barossa girls with mariko can you expand a little bit more about how you've defined yourselves as keepers with a responsibility for preservation and conservation of something valuable. Talk to us about that. Right. So um, I guess that, I mean, that term sort of started because Marika and I both do a lot of fowlers preserving bottling putting fruit into bottles which is a really old-fashioned skill but it's also incredibly relevant and incredibly enduring so it's a really important and adaptable you know once you understand how this process works it's a it's a really 
valuable skill to have in your kitchen repertoire and so that's how we started and and it, you know this is a really old-fashioned skill but it's one that's really worth preserving and we see a lot of parallels between that skill but also the Barossa cookery book where you know we now live in a world where we have to concentrate and think so much more about being sustainable less waste you know producing less rubbish less energy usage you know a smaller carbon footprint etc and things like Fowler's Preserving and that cookbook give us a roadmap to how do we do that? I mean, our grandparents lived so much more sustainably than we do, and it was all quite natural to them. So what are the good things out of the past that we can bring forward and keep? Yeah. So that's that's how the term keepers came about. So that's super interesting. How integral, though, do you really think that the food story is to Barossa's regional history? I think it's really important. And I think, again, in order to understand its importance, we have to go back a little bit. We have to take a few steps backwards to see, you know, the, the European settlement of the Barossa. And, you know, these, these European settlers who arrived here with their own language, their own religion, their own food culture, you know, that... They were quite isolated and quite insulated sort of geographically, physically, emotionally, linguistically in terms of their worship. You know, that they were really quite, and, you know, and they settled in these quite insulated little towns, little enclaves that really had very little communication and integration between them. And so we, end, we ended up with this kind of really quite distinct little microcosm of, you know, <laughs> Even our own language. When I mean, we speak, our, our descendants here in the Barossa spoke Barossa Deutsch. So we even had our own little specific language with our own little translations and adaptations of recipes. And so, you know, that, that kind of really insulated mentality or, you know, reality meant mm. that, that we ended up with something that's really quite concentrated. Mm. So it is quite unique in terms Absolutely. of our, Absolutely. our history. That's yeah, interesting. Now, Shirley, we've made obviously quite a few references along the way to that book. That book. And I, and I think that book in itself has the most amazing story as to how it came into being. Absolutely. Do tell you want to tell the story or I'm, do you want me to do it? I'd really <laughs> like to hear you tell me how okay. that book came into being. Okay. So in 1917, the Barossa Valley, like so many communities and country towns across Australia, was reeling in the midst of World War One. Now, the powers that be in, in Tanunda, or the community in general, wanted to, wanted to establish some kind of war fundraising effort. They wanted to establish a memorial hall in Tanunda, but they needed to raise funds. Now, community cookbooks at that stage were a brand new idea. There was a couple that had been printed into state, but this was still really a brand new initiative. So the Barossa decided that's what they were going to do. They were going to pull together recipes from women across the community and publish a cookbook. So that's what they did. So in 1917, they published the first edition of the Bross Cookery Book. It's a tiny little book with 400 recipes. It's got a red cover. And the funds that they raised from that purchased a building that was built by the Tanunda Club initially and they bought it and endowed it to the community as the Tanunda Soldiers Memorial Hall. Now in 1932 they needed to raise more funds for the building. It's Great Depression interest rates were high, they needed to pay more um, mortgage payments on the building so they needed to generate more funds. So they updated the cookbook with a tight six-week turnaround. They placed an ad in the paper they called for another round of recipe contributions they added another 600 recipes to it. They gave it its distinctive line drawing cover and printed the... Th- it was actually the third edition. So there was the first edition. There was a small reprint several years later. And then this was a big remake, a big rework, 1932. Now, that book has remained in that format in constant reprint since 1932. So it's one of Australia's oldest community cookbooks. 
It's one of the very few that has remained in constant print. And the funds generated from the book still go to maintaining the Tanunda Soldiers Memorial Hall, which is now Barossa's Regional Gallery. Shirley, I've always been intrigued with that book, which I love referring to. Yeah. As that book. I've always been intrigued. Two things. One, that everybody that submitted a recipe had their name put against it mm -hmm. for all prosperity to see. Yeah. But probably the thing that struck me was that there's a couple of dishes or a couple of recipes in there with multiple recipes from different families. Tell me a bit about that. Yes, absolutely. So um, I guess honey biscuits is the, you know, the obvious one for that. So we see, I think there's something like 14 different variations of honey biscuit recipes in the cookbook. And, you know, again, this is where all of this whole sort of food story starts to become so fascinating because you start to ask yourself questions about, well, why are there 14 different versions? And that's because each family had its own adaptation based on its access to ingredients. So, for example, Selma Arns, whose recipe we rely on a lot in the cookbook, her father, she, she lived in Vinevale and her father kept bees. So she had, she had access to honey. So her recipe is heavy in honey. Um, then there's other, there's other people who preferred stronger flavours of spices. There might be more cloves, there might be more nutmeg, there might be less cloves or... You know, some people liked their biscuits sweeter, so they would use sugar as well as honey, etc., etc. And then, of course, you know, then then we get into the the big question that can divide a room and divide a family about, you know, is it supposed to be thick and chewy or is it supposed to be thin and crispy? <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> absolutely, there's so many variations. So, why do you think of all the biscuits in the Barossa Cookery book and our history? Why do you think it's the honey biscuit that we've really embraced as ours? Now, again, I'm going to go back to some of Angela's research on this because she has written an incredible body of work on sort of tracing the recipe history or the recipe origins of the, of the honey biscuits. And she's traced it right back to a medieval European recipe for gingerbread. And she can translate or demonstrate the connections and how the recipe has been adapted and the small steps it's taken from there to here. And again, you know, we've, so there's this really old-fashioned gingerbread recipe that they've bought with them to the Barossa Valley they can't access those ingredients but they've got all of this honey so that's what they did they translated and adapted the recipe just a small tweak one more time and then here we are in this insulated little environment where suddenly the person down the road goes oh that's a really great idea I'm going to make my biscuits the same way and all of a sudden you've got a regional food story that's just been born fantastic I've also been really intrigued that it was it was more than just a cookery book and if you flick through the back section of it there's cocktails there's one of my favorites the reliable cure for croup yeah so it's it's more than just a book it's it's actually it's all about how to literally manage a household absolutely and you know this is one of the things that our research has uncovered is you know we have to remember that for these women in 1917 and in 1932 you know they didn't have access to an education they had no independent income they had no autonomy legally or socially that you know there were, there were no other opportunities for them apart from this gender expectation that they were going to have children and raise a family so for so many of these women the recipe that's in the cookbook that's their life's work wow that's really amazing that's a really interesting perspective I feel like you almost know every person in those recipe books personally <laughs> or you know their stories but I suppose my question is how do you keep the stories of our people alive through food whether it be those of the past or today 
Well, I guess, I mean, a huge part, so, you know, we're doing a, a huge project with the, with that book that, that Stewie so fondly refers to, that, that uh, takes a lot of the stories of those women and brings them forward and tells their story. But more importantly than that, like, you know, food memories are really powerful things. So the food that you ate as a child has the power to transport you back with one bite. You know, the, the, those, just by keeping those things alive, and encouraging people to cook those recipes again, we're going to perpetuate those powerful food stories and carry them forward to a whole new generation. Also really interested in, I mean, the, the way you talk about the food culture with, with such great passion reminds me also of some of the great winemakers of the region that also talk about uh, their craft with great passion in, in our quest for mastery. What sort of parallels do you see between the food and wine cultures within this region? Well, again, I mean, I, I, I keep coming back to this idea that, you know, traditionally and historically was so insulated. And so I think that produces this really, you know, nowadays we talk about an echo chamber in the digital internet world. But I think that's really what we'd created here in the Barossa to start with. You know, we were so insulated and it became sort of so concentrated and so focused in terms of food and food tradition and wine and that it really did become a quest internally to master all of it and to be the best at what you could do, but also to do the most you could with what you had access to. So depending on sort of, you know, so in terms of food, it's like, you know, you've got to take these seasonal ingredients and you've got to do the most you can with them in the most efficient way possible because in six or eight weeks' time, there's not going to be any more apricots. So you've got all these apricots right now, so what are you going to do with them so that in the middle of winter, you've still got some? So, you know, it, it, it was kind of a forced necessity that encouraged people to perfect their skill. Mm. And I, I think that that translates to both food and wine. And when you go through the book, it's just really interesting reading the recipes. The measurements are what I find fascinating. Do you yeah. want to just touch on a little yeah. bit of that? So again, you know, we're talking about this snapshot that goes straight back to 1917 and 1932, where the recipe might say something like, you know, um, cook in a quick oven well, or remove from the fire, you know. And so again, we're talking about wood ovens that, you know, you didn't just turn a dial and you, you had control of the temperature. You, you know, this, there was a real skill in knowing how hot your oven was and how much wood it needed to get to that temperature. But then there was also this incredible body of knowledge in terms of how this recipe is supposed to look and, and what it's supposed to feel like. So in so many of those recipes, there's an assumed knowledge that, that you know what a cake texture, a cake mixture texture is supposed to look like so you know the recipe might say a scant teacup of flour which basically just means you know they're saying we'll just grab a handful of flour and throw it in until it looks right so yeah, amazing yeah i mean we don't cook like that anymore no, but, no. Uh, <laughs> cooking, cooking by feel rather yeah. than cooking by numbers absolutely well, look um obviously because there's been that many references to that book which i'm just gonna have to take that with me now that book yeah um for anyone out there, where do I actually get a copy of the Barossa Cooking book, book? That book. Okay, so there's several places in the Barossa Valley where you can grab a hold of a copy. So Raven's Parlour Bookstore on the main street of Tanunda sell them. The gift shop in the Tanunda Regional Gallery or the Barossa's Regional Gallery sell them. If you need an online option, we have them available through our website. You can click on our shop page and we will post you a copy. I think it's also available at the Artisans of Barossa. Ah, uh, yes, yes, it is. Absolutely. Yeah. One thing I'd really like to, to hear from you as well, Shelley, because you and I have spoken about this before, is so we've got this beautiful historical book, 1917, and then in the 30s, where is the book going now with the work that you and Marika are doing? Right. 
So we've just completed about two years worth of research and writing where we've selected it's about 85 recipes from that 1,000. So obviously it's just a really small <laughs> selection of the 1,000 and we've updated those 85 recipes with full metric method and beautiful food photography so that that recipe has been translated into full metric measurements with a beautiful with a really clear method for how to produce it but then alongside that recipe we're also going to tell the story of the woman who contributed it so in the cookbook that recipe has her name on it but the other thing in 1917 and in 1932 was that a woman didn't use her own name she used her husband's initial so Gwen Nettlebeck for example in the cookbook is Mrs A Nettlebeck you'll find that's how you'll find her but her name was Gwen so we sort of thought at the very least you know given that this is her life's work at the very least we could give her her own name (laughs) so um you know so we're telling the story of the woman who contributed the recipe so it'll be her recipe and her story are you trying to include photographs of oh absolutely so we've we've worked really closely with as many living descendants as we can trace and we've found some absolutely fabulous photographs of these women and their life stories are fascinating i mean some of them are just tragic heartbreaking with the you know they lost sons and daughters and yeah you know and how these women had the strength and the courage to continue to contribute is just incredible but yes that you know that again we're coming back to these stories of loss and love and dedication and sacrifice but we end up with this incredibly resilient community that's produced this incredibly valuable thing that still lives timeless Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. And, and still very much evident when you go down and see the exhibits at the Tanunda show Absolutely. in the cooking section. There's some pretty stiff competition down there. But for me, Shirley, you're leaving corporate life and you live on a farm out on the western ridge of the Barossa. Yeah. Bit of a change. It was. <laughs> Although, having said that, I mean, I did grow up on a farm in the Murray Mallee, but quite coincidentally, I've discovered that um, where I live, um, I'm actually only about a kilometre and a half from where my great-grandfather was born. Is that right? So, wow. Yeah. So, you know, I guess I guess it means that I was called here. I, I, I kind of feel like I was called here. I feel like this is where I belong. So, you know, I do have... I do have a strong generational connection to the Barossa, but I did kind of end up here quite by accident and then kind of went, well, I think this is where I'm meant to be. (laughs) (laughs) It sure sounds like it. Amazing, fascinating stories. Just so fabulous the work that you're doing on that book to, you know, continue that legacy and really celebrate the women. Thank you. um, From the past. So thanks so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure.